Welcome to this edition of DCS Talks, a podcast production of the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. The intention of DCS Talks is to promote dialogue among child welfare professionals, foster parents, and the entire community about ways to prevent child abuse and neglect. Hello everyone, I'm Julie Rotella, Assistant Commissioner of Administration for Tennessee Department of Children's Services. So glad you're able to join today to learn about the importance of adoption as a permanency option for our children who are in full guardianship with the state of Tennessee. We will be discussing adoption with both DCS case managers from South Central Region and adoptive parents. It also gives us an opportunity to highlight success stories and celebrate positive outcomes for children that have found their forever family. Hi, we're here now with Lori Rowling. Lori, could you introduce yourself for our listening audience? Yes, I am Lori Rowling. Um, I work with the Department of Children's Services. I have been with the department for eight years. When I first started with the department, I did three years foster care, and then I went for four years into the child protective service area, and I have now been back with foster care for another year. Oh, wow, that's great. A lot of strong experience working with DCS and serving our family. Yes, and it's been nice both sides of seeing the foster care side and then the child protective side, so it's helped a lot in my job. Yeah, that's so important to understand the roles that both sides play and how those impact a family. So you were on, you were the case manager that worked with the Hinn family. Could you share with us what stands out for you in their adoption story? Sure. Um, I actually took that case over about halfway through. It's probably around July of last year. And when I came into this case, the youth on this case was a teenager, and this youth had been through a whole lot of trauma and family, which stands out huge to me. No matter what the youth had going on in his life, they supported them like it was their own child. Anytime something would occur with like therapy-wise or if there was acting out at home, they were the first ones to step up and make sure they got the proper therapy in or making sure he had who he needed to talk to. And it was just the biggest thing of them being a strong support. They never gave up on this child. And I think they also seen that it wasn't this child's fault, the reason that he was in that situation. It was his parents' fault. And I think that's been the biggest strong bond I've seen between them is because they have never gave up on him no matter what's happened. They have treated him as a son, as their child from the moment he entered their home. Yeah, having that connection and that acceptance is so important. So what are some of the obstacles do you think that they went through that they had to overcome? Well, a a lot of it, um, the child had experienced a lot of trauma through how his mother had treated him. And I don't think he realized what love was. And the family will show him what real love is, that you're not supposed to hurt your child. And I think once he started building that bond of, hey, no matter what I do, they're still going to love me. And so through the time that he was with them, he started opening up more about his past. And they were never shocked about what he would say. They always supported him and said, hey, we'll help you through this. And the more that he could open up and work through those issues, the closer they got. And that's the biggest thing, I think, with his family. They never showed a shock value on any of it. They supported him and worked through everything that ever happened with him. Really allowed that trust to take place and cement so that he knew they were going to be there for him no matter what. Yes. So how do you see DCS as an advocate or support for families going through adoption? Well, um, all, all foster families are different to deal with, but we're always there to back them no matter what because they never know what issues may arise with a child or what a child may disclose about past trauma they've had. So we're always there to send them in the right direction of, hey, here's this kind of therapy for you to get the child into, but we're also a support for the family of, 
hey, do you need additional classes of how to deal with the youth of this sort or been, been through this trauma? So you kind of see what they've been through to help them. But that's one thing we've been beside the mountains all through this, um, helped on a legal end a whole lot of making sure that we made sure this child did not go back to the parents for the abuse that occurred to him. And we were able to get him in full guardianship so that way he could be adopted by a family that would be his forever family. Well, that's great. Yeah, and I think like you're saying, really helping the family navigate a very complex, difficult system and having that knowledge and that expertise to see them through the whole process is so important. I think the other thing that you said, Lori, that really wanted to take note of is you approach this family as unique and individual, and not just this family, but I think all the families that you work with. And so looking at whatever the services they may need, the supports they may need, you're really tailoring it to that specific family. Oh, I would definitely agree. And a lot of it, because they were so involved in all of his therapy, towards the end, I mean, the child was in full guardianship, we were getting close to adoption, and some things came up. And of course, the family worked through it. And when they called me, they're like, do you have any suggestions? Here, here's what I was thinking. I was like, you as a family knows more about him. You're with him day in and day out. And they kind of took the lead, their parents now, of w what they should do to move forward, whether he needed therapy or if he didn't. And that's where I think a part of them, they become the parents. They do what's best for their child. And the department, of course, we wholeheartedly supported their decisions. And they ran past us, but they started making those decisions of what was best for their son. Yeah, that's awesome. I can't thank you enough, Lori, for being here with us today to share this story. And also, thank you for all that you do to serve the children and families in Tennessee. Uh, we appreciate you. No problem. Thank you. Up next, we will talk with adoptive parents of four children and then later hear from their case managers. I'm here with Carrie and Scott, adoptive parents of four children. Would you please say hello to our listeners? Hello. hello. <laughs> uh, all right, now that we have you here, I'd love to know how your journey began. Could you describe your family prior to the adoption? Prior to the adoption, um, it was Scott and I, and we had a dog. And we had discovered that we were going to have some issues having some children of our own. And we actually kind of bounced back for a while, a good while, between fertility doctors or adoption agencies and just kind of struggled with each of those choices. Um, like I said, we went back and forth a few different times and we had some friends that either worked at DCS or, you know, had done things through DCS before that mentioned, you know, doing the foster to adopt kind of situations that they had there. And we looked for classes and found some, you know, pretty close to us and started classes to get involved that way. That's great. So it sounds like it was something that you really took time to think through before you made that commitment. Looking looking back now, it was kind of boring because, I mean, now that you got four kids, you're running around crazy all the time. So, <laughs> so I mean, it's you think you're busy, but you ain't. Until <laughs> <laughs> you really are, right? Yeah. Right. So could you please share with us, how did your children come to be a part of your family? Well, none of the four that we have are actually related to one another outside of our home. They are brothers and sisters here, but... Um, so it was four separate cases and four separate, you know, DCS workers and, and everything. Um, Mason is our oldest. He actually came to us as pre-adoptive, but it was a legal risk placement. So they had not done all the termination and everything, the court stuff and everything yet. And he was with us for 
about a year and a half before we were able to finalize everything and go through the courts. Casey was sent to us as a pre-adoptive. She's our oldest girl. We have two boys and two girls. Maria, we fostered from day one, and she was with us just over two years um, before we finalized everything with her just at the end of last year. Bryce also came to us as, as pre-adoptive, knowing that we wanted to do the adoptions and things when, when those emails and those things would go out about people who were interested. We answered anything that we thought we were interested in, um, and so that's... That's how they all came to be here. That's awesome. So how did DCS assist you throughout this process? You mentioned you had several different case managers. Can you talk a little bit about that experience with DCS? Well, all the case workers and everything coming here um, to our home and, and seeing the kids and, you know, the kids would get to know them and from seeing them, you know, they, they helped us sometimes with doctor visits and things because Scott and I both work. So, um, you know, if, if things were coming up that doctor visits and things like that, you know, they they would had the um, permission to go get them from daycare or you know whatever and take them you know to the doctors and things that so there, that was definitely a big help with both of us working outside the home just the support of being able to talk through things with them because especially with Maria's since we had her from day one of her being in custody there was lots of frustration you know with trying to get the birth parents to, to work the plan or decide what they're doing or, or things like that. And so just having that person just to be able to kind of bounce some of that frustration off of is, is helpful in and, in and of itself. Yeah, it's a very difficult system to navigate. And then she said, I'm sure there were a lot of frustrations and a lot of uncertainty, especially with Maria. Yes, yes. And, and with Mason, since he was um, legal risk, like none of that, termination things or anything like that happened so we could have gone to, to court and it not it gone the opposite way that it did but we we're fortunate to be able to hold on to him because we love him very much <laughs> and he's fortunate too so what you talked a little bit about this but maybe a little more what barriers or obstacles did your family have to overcome i think we were pretty headstrong <clears throat> in getting our classes and things under you know underway and so i know we took a lot of the that, steps and getting all of our home study stuff together that's that's probably one of the like the training and stuff that you have to do i can see where it would be very very cumbersome if you had to sit down an hour to you know five or six eight ten times throughout the year on top of all the doctor's visits and checkups and meeting with everybody uh the very best thing that I think that we did was the training that the, the conference that they have each year to where we took the week, we, we made it like a getaway weekend to get away from the kids and, you know, uh, left the kids with her mom or my mom and dad. And then we went and spent the whole weekend getting our stuff done and out of the way. So I would say that's, probably the biggest thing and it's easier just to get it all done one weekend and be finished with it and don't have to worry than trying to do it throughout the year along with you know them being sick getting called away from work and going to the doctors and because they all have the checkups and the dental checkups and, and, meetings, and, and meetings and court and i mean it's just a and that, and it does help having, at the time I wasn't, I hadn't started a new job, but having good employers that understand, because if 
if you have somebody saying you missed seven days and you're terminated, you might as well go and quit and find you another job somewhere else. So you definitely talk with your employer, you know, when this you is know, the journey you're going to do, because it definitely makes a difference. Um, if they're there to help you and they understand, then you'll have no problem. But if you just kind of blindside them by it, they may not be real understanding about it. But our case, we were lucky. We've been where we've been for a while and we could kind of do what we needed to do. That's really great advice on, on both fronts. The, I've heard several foster parents say that, that the foster parent conference is kind of like a mini retreat or vacation for them and then able to get all yes. that training. Because it, it is a lot when you have so many things going on in your life and then to add that on top of it. And then also about really talking with your employers and ensuring that they're understanding and they're to support. That's excellent advice. Were you going to say something, Karen? I was just going to say it kind of gives that foster parent weekend, the conference weekend. I always took it as kind of like a reset button, you know, and and your 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 kids, of course, are still on your mind because you're there to to take classes to help you help them so and learn, you know, how you can be helpful with them and everything. So it's still definitely on the forefront, but it is kind of nice to have that weekend where it's kind of a reset button of taking a breather and being able to do stuff for yourself and not feel like you're being selfish for doing it, I guess, or something like that because right. you have children to take care of. That, so it was kind of good to, to get all of your um, hours that are required out of the way, plus have, you know, a, some time for yourself to kind of reset and be ready to come back home to all of it again. <laughs> right, right. And you're right. I mean, in order to take care of others, we have to take care of ourselves. So it's important to yes. find that time to recharge and refuel. So switching gears a little bit, what relationship, if any, do you have with the birth families? Currently, we don't have um, any relationships with the birth families for the four that we have adopted. All four of our children are fairly young. And while we've been open about the fact that they've been adopted and they all are aware that their names have changed and and um, we try to make their adoption day a big deal, you know, everybody's together, even the children that are in school and things, they're all aware of that, but we don't necessarily have those relationships yet. I, I think at their age, it would make it a little more difficult on them and their growth and development. Definitely open to relationships as they are older and can understand, and, and those situations can be better explained when they're able to understand them instead of now when they're so young. And I, I think you were mentioning to me earlier, too, that you, you really have to look at whether, whether that family is in a healthy place or safe place to right. have that relationship. Yeah, you right. don't want to bring more drama. You know, they have their own, we have our own problems and our own issues, and you don't want to bring someone else's into the mix and compile it because then it'll just make it, you know, make, the child that much more having that much more problems if he has any or trauma from right right being involved in those situations right and even though they're young it could trigger some of that trauma response yes and they were i mean even though they don't remember right now i'm sure they remember something you know it's kind of like as you get older you remember things from your childhood that you might have repressed them when you were little but as you get older they come back up that's exactly right. What advice do you have for potential adoptive parents? Don't get frustrated and take care of yourself. Yes, nice. and and stick with it. Uh, like 
we were saying earlier, there are some frustrations, you know, in dealing with even just initially starting, you know, all the paperwork and all the information that you have to give up front. It does seem cumbersome. It does seem overwhelming. But I know in our classes, you know, it was kind of explained, you know, you guys need to know, DCS needs to know financially, you know, how you're doing, health-wise, how you're doing, you know, family-wise and how you were raised and your, you know, thoughts and things on all that stuff. Um, so there, there's a reason that all that information has to be filled out and given. And there, you know, there's a reason behind the training and things. Um, these children have experienced trauma that children that are born into a family and grow up in that same family, they don't experience that. And so, you know, to take care of them, you, you kind of, you have to understand where they're coming from. And so those frustrations and those things that you have to learn and do, and it's worth it in the end, you know, when you have four little ones running around your house, driving you crazy, you're, you're blessed by that. And, and just don't ever feel like you're out on an island by yourself. I mean, if you, cause I know, I know ourselves, you can't spank them. You, you know, you can't seclude them, you know, and timeout don't always work. And you, you know, and some people just throw their hands up and get tired and say, move them. Uh, and there's people there that will talk you through and just all you have to do is ask. And there's somebody that, I mean, it may take a little while to get a meeting together and sit down and talk about it or whatnot. There may not be somebody right there at that very moment, but there's somebody there that will help you and walk you through it. And it and ain't saying it'll fix anything. I mean, it's still, but there's someone there that can help you come up with other ways and different ways of thinking to do stuff. I think that was also positive for us going to the conferences to see the other parents and hear their stories and know I have felt that I have seen that I have dealt with that to, to have those, those type relationships where people understand and can empathize with you you know, in your situation and maybe have an idea that you've not tried yet. So yeah, definitely don't feel alone and, and don't be afraid to reach out. That's great, great advice. Yeah, and, and I love the point of asking. It, it's okay to ask for that help and knowing that that support is there can just be a comfort in and of itself. So lastly, how has your life changed with your growing family? <laughs> <laughs> Probably easier to tell you how it hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> we now have a house full of children. I know um, Scott and I just a couple of summers ago when actually the fourth uh, little Bryce got here, you know, we were all outside playing and we looked at each other and we were like, who would have thought just a few years ago we would be the ones with the yard full of kids? Like we, it was just the two of us and a dog, you know? And so it, things can change um, pretty quickly when you're taking, you know, doing the fostering and then adopting children and things. And our neighbors and everybody are aware of us fostering children. A neighbor came over one day because some neighborhood kids were in our yard, but it was not neighborhood kids that she was used to seeing. And she came over, she's like, have you gotten more kids? <laughs> I'm like, no, these are just some friends playing. <laughs> and she was like, oh, okay, well, I was thinking maybe I'd miss something. <laughs> So it's it's gone from quiet to something all the time, which can be in and of itself <laughs> a little overwhelming. But it's when they're when they do spend a weekend with you know grandparents or something, we kind of look at each other, and go, "What do we do now? Like, and, and what did we do before?" You know, <laughs> because it is so different when they're not here. <laughs> 
never a dull moment. <laughs> That's great. Great place to end. Well, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your story with us. It's been amazing and some really great advice. And just want to say how much honor and appreciate you all for opening your homes and your heart to our children and making them your children now. Um, we just, we at DCF cannot do this work without committed, dedicated people such as yourself. So thank you so much for that. Thank, thank you. you. Hey everyone, I'm joined now with Holly and Jessica who played key roles in Carrie and Scott's adoption story. And Holly and Jessica, would you like to introduce yourselves? Sure. Um, I'm Holly Warner and I'm the team leader for South Central Region's Permanency Unit. Um, I've been involved with Carrie and Scott since they began their journey as foster parents and had answered some questions for them years ago about becoming foster parents. Um, I finalized one of their adoptions and I was the team leader um, when they finalized two of the other adoptions that they've completed. My name is Jessica Holt. I am a DCS permanency specialist in the South Central region. I became involved with Carrie and Scott around 2014-2015 when they started their first adoption process and then worked with them on adoption of two of the other children that they've adopted as well. Well, that's amazing. Thank you both for being here today. I want to start with what stood out for you all in working with Carrie and Scott, um, both as foster parents when they were foster parents and then as adoptive parents? Um, I think the things that stood out for me is just how open and loving they were with all of the children. Um, it's been amazing to see their journey as each kid has been added. Um, especially with Bryce, one of their younger adopted children. His personality just kind of blossomed once he became part of the family. Um, and you can definitely tell who's mama's boy and daddy's girl within the family. Um, as far as foster parents, um, just they've been a great partner to the department, um, working with birth families as well as through the adoption process. Yeah, this is Jessica. I agree with that. Uh, they are so supportive and loving, not just to the children in the home, but to the families that we work with. They have fostered multiple kids, and they have been just such important members of the team for each and every child. They've been a cornerstone for each child that they've had. Um, you know, they're, they help each child with whatever it is that they're dealing with, um, and they are just, just great people. They're wonderful people. That is so heartwarming and inspiring to hear. What challenges, if any, did the family have to overcome? Um, I think like with any of our foster parents, transitioning a child home that has been with them for a significant amount of time, um, which is a challenge for anybody. Um, they had a child for over a year that um, transitioned home, but I think that they were able to make the best of it and maintain a relationship with the mom and the child, at least for a period of time following the child returning home. And also the court process can be a little daunting and drawn out with some of the adoption stories, but Carrie and Scott through all of it, you know, they're so understanding and willing to ask questions and, you know, kind of work with with the department and the legal system as well. Well, that's great to hear. 
And yeah, you know, back to what Holly was saying, that has to be difficult. We ask foster families to open their hearts, not just their homes, but their hearts to our children. And then when children are we're glad to see them reunified home, it has to be heartbreaking though for these families who they became such, uh, you know, a strong piece part of their home, of their hearts and family. What were some of the bright spots or successes for the families? Obviously, I think the broadest thing was getting to adopt their four sweet kiddos. Um, and just going back to like what I said before, just the change um, in the kids once they were in a family dynamic and comfortable and seeing, you know, how each kid interacts with each parent and with each other and just watching them bloom into this family unit. Jessica, anything that you wanted to share? Yeah, just kind of piggybacking off of what Holly said, just watching this family interact just makes you smile. You can just sit back and see them with one another and how far the kids have come since they've been, they were put in the home. It's just, it's inspiring to watch. Well, that's awesome. So what role does DCS play within the adoption process? So mine and Jessica's team is one that kind of gets um, involved in cases more towards the end of the case once adoption maybe is added as an option to the permanency plan that the department works with the family. And once a child is in full guardianship, um, we're who work with the adoptive family and their family service worker to finalize those last steps toward adoption and providing with them with resources and the information that they need when adopting a child. So the permanency unit is there to guide the family towards adoption. We will complete a lot of the paperwork with the family and make sure that, you know, everything is going smoothly with the courts and make sure that if there's any last minute services or um, assistance that the family needs prior to adoption that those get addressed. Uh, and also we provide post-adoption information for, that is offered through uh, ASAP, Adoption Support and Preservation Services. Uh, and I know our permanency unit typically gives contact information to the family to call us if there's any issues later on um, as far as obtaining birth certificates or social security cards or accessing post-adoption services. And another piece that our team does is recruitment for our children who are in full guardianship of the department without an identified home. We work on actively recruiting through services such as Adopt Us Kids and the Heart Gallery. And we work with our providers um, such as Harmony to recruit and hopefully find those children their forever families as well. Yeah, permanency specialists, you all provide such important support through your knowledge, your expertise, um, but then also being there not just for the families, for the kids, and also for your coworkers as well. I really, you know, I, I, you just play such an important role that I can't see how a family or a child or even um, DCS case manager could navigate the whole adoption process without you all being there and being present and a part of that. So thank you for that and thank you for your service. Jessica, Holly, did you have any information that you wanted to share with listeners in case they wanted to become foster parents? Yeah, if anybody is interested in fostering, um, we can give you that phone number. It is 
5437, or you can go to tn.gov/dcs. Tennessee is a foster to adopt state, so you have to become a foster parent first before you can adopt through the department. But there's a lot of information on that tn.gov website. And then if you want to go to adoptuskids.org, there are also children listed with a photo and a brief narrative. They are waiting for a forever family. Thank you for sharing that information. And again, thank you both for all you do and the hope and joy that you provide for our kids who are waiting for those forever families and just making the world a better place. So thank you. And thank you for your time today. Thank you. We are here today with Julie D, mother of William, and she is here to share their journey to adoption. Yes, yeah, so we um, started fostering our um, son, William, in April of 2019. We were not in the foster system as of yet, but my mother-in-law knew the birth mother, and so we heard about him on a Sunday, and we immediately wanted to help in any way we could at that time not knowing what that was. Um, I talked to the birth mother Tuesday, and then we went to court with her on the following Wednesday. And I was granted a kinship to foster, and I went and visited him that day after court in the hospital, and then we were able to bring him home the following Sunday when he was about two weeks old. Well, that sounds like a whirlwind and a big change probably to your life. So what did your family look like prior to William coming into it? Yes, we had at the time a 12-year-old girl, a, I'm trying to go back in age, a 10-year-old, or maybe she was 11, and a 9-year-old, all three biological daughters. Our life was pretty fast going, as you can imagine, with three older kids. They're in sports. They have school. And so we were just busy, but we felt that God was telling us to help William and the birth parents at the time. And, you know, that's just what we felt like we needed to do. So I kind of set all my girls down and they were excited, but I wanted them to understand, you know, we were just fostering. We didn't know how long it would be for. It could be a month, it could be six months, or it could be a year. You, you never know. And so I just tried to explain to them that, you know, this is what God wants us to do and whatever his will is, whether it's for him to stay with us or for him to go back with his birth parents, that, you know, we just needed to trust in that. And I try to always, every few months, let them know this is still a temporary thing. But months goes by, everybody gets attached, especially younger children. And I just try to always let them understand that, you know, this is still temporary. We're not really sure what's going to happen. And I think that's the way you need to go into fostering because you never know how long it's going to be. And there's a lot of emotions in it because you're caring for this child daily. Your kids love them like siblings, but you just always need to reiterate with them. We never know how long this is going to be. Right. Sounds like there's a lot of ups and downs. And then also, Prior to the adoption, you're still working with the birth family for reunification. Could you tell us a little bit about what that relationship looked like? Yes, I went to court every time there was a court date with the mother. I tried to support her. I always um, encouraged her with encouraging words. You, you need to 
have a good relationship with them, in my opinion, because at the time you're going through it, reunification is the goal. So you don't want there to be any animosity between you two. So um, you have to share doctor's appointments. They are allowed to go with you if they choose to. And you just have to be very open. If your child has doctor's appointments, you have to be open with that and what the medical plan is if they don't. The birth mom and I always had a really good relationship. Like we would tell each other we love love each other and hug each other because at the end of the day, you know, she is my son's birth mom. And I do love her because she gave birth to something that has brought a lot of joy to our lives. I just think for our son William's sake that keeping a good relationship with boundaries is um, the best for him. That's really beautiful. Kind of transitioning a little bit, what role did DCS play throughout this whole process? Um, DCS is very supportive and they were very understanding if I ever had concerns about anything and they're very supportive with everybody all around the birth mom or the birth dad they were supportive with us if we needed anything if we needed any help getting him into any kind of programs like that they're just very like I probably texted our social worker every day or every other day about something you know like I just try to let us everybody have a good relationship all around because I feel like it works smoother if everybody communicates with each other. If you are a working parent and think, oh, I can't foster because I work, DCS helps pay for childcare. So there's a lot of things that DCS can help with if you reach out to them and ask for it. That's great to hear. So talk to us now about, so from the time William came into your home until the adoption actually took place, how long of a time frame was that? And then if you could describe the actual adoption itself. So we got him in April of 2019 and in February of 2020, they surrendered their rights. And then we were able to adopt, it would have been sooner, but COVID hit. So we adopted on June 8th of 2020. We had to do it via Zoom, which was disappointing for me because I wanted to have all the courtroom pictures from storybook, but, um, we had a Zoom and it was great. We took lots of, lots of pictures there with our perm specialist, our social worker, and our foster care support person. They were all great people for me during that year. And then we all went to the courthouse afterwards to take pictures outside so I could get those special pictures for his storybook. That's great. And I love the importance that you place on uh, the life storybook. It is a critical piece for our kids to have that. To, as they get older, to be able to look back and really know and understand their story. So what does your relationship with the birth family look like now? The birth mother and I talk about once a month. She'll message me just asking how things are going, and I'll respond and ask her how she's doing. And we, I told her that the, you know, she, we could get together about once every six months, and that as he got older, we would kind of address that to age and to how comfortable he is that so we saw got him some christmas she actually got him a christmas present and my biological girl christmas presents and we got together with her and just tried to you know you you want that relationship for for i want that for william because i think later in life it'll help him understand the process better and that and it'd be a positive process because i don't want there to ever be any questions about did i was i not wanted or 
anything that adoptive kids sometimes can go through. And I just feel like if we keep that open and leave it up to him, you know, because he may later when he's a teenager decide, you know what, I don't want to see her twice a year or whatever it may be. And that way it's his kind of decision. But you always want to keep it healthy, in my opinion, to know he was not just never wanted. That's extremely important. So you touched on a little before, but if you could tell us more, what advice do you have for potential adoptive parents? It's, you need to go into fostering as in, you don't know how long you're going to have this child because you don't know. And the hardest thing going into it is thinking if you, especially like me getting a newborn and bringing that newborn home from the hospital is thinking this child's mine because the end goal it, it could work out for you and it could not. There's a lot of ups and downs. You do visits with birth parents once a week. You know, you drop them off for that, for however many hours the court designated. And you just have to know that, like, there's a lot of ups and downs in it. But despite what it, the end result is, you're doing good for that child while you're doing it whether it's six months or a year, that child is feeling loved during that time that maybe it wouldn't have. And you just need to realize that, you know, that's the end result is making sure that child feels loved for whatever time you have it, just because there are so many ups and downs and you don't know how it's going to turn out. I mean, but if you work with the parent, the, you know, good with DCS, it can all go smoothly. No, that's great. And I think it's that knowing ahead of time, preparing yourself for that, because it can be a heartache. I can only imagine if you had a child, an infant come to your home and you want the parent to do well and they, and they do well and they're able to reunify that baby in the first family's home, that, that's a grief. That's a loss. And it can right. be very difficult to manage. And then I think it's always going to hurt. I think, as you said, the more you do to prepare yourself ahead of time, that is going to minimize um, the pain and the grief that will come. It is. And it's it's hard because if the birth parents aren't doing what you think they should be doing, which happened with me some, it's kind of a little bit of anger because you're like, why are we still working with them? Because they're not doing it. But just because they may skip a month of visits, which did happen to me, I... I still still try to understand, like, you know, everybody makes mistakes. It's just hard because you see things that, as a parent, you would probably not do. And you're trying to give somebody that's trying to get their life together together the grace. And it's a lot of emotion with that because, you know, you're caring for this child every day. And you're wanting it to end the way you want it to. And when you're seeing the birth parents not do what it is, it can get frustrating. But you, at the end of the day, you need to know, like, that's the end goal for everybody is to make sure the child is placed, you know, with the right home. Whether it's back, back with... Um, Back with the birth parents or stay with you? And for those listeners at home, William's now joined us. So I think you could kind of hear him in the background. And um, he's, he's listening to his story and being a part of his story. I know one of the things you had touched on when we talked previously was the love you feel for the birth parent, birth mother, and I think in that situation. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I, 
I care a lot about her because she had a lot of stuff in her past that, you know, she has struggles. And at the end of the day, I try to give her the grace of that. She's William's mom, birth mom. And I love her because of that. And I think that as long as, you know, I try to think about everybody makes mistakes in your life, whether you're however old you are, sometimes you just make mistakes and you get down a bad path. And I try to look past that because at the end of the day, she's my son's birth mom. And I love her because of that. Cause she in life and, you know, I just try to keep a good relationship with a, with between us because I do care about her and I care what happens to her. And I try to help her any way that I can, but I do try, you do have to put up boundaries too. Yeah, that's so important to have those boundaries. I, I don't know if you've listened to Brene Brown, but she talks about that, that it's actually the people who have the most compassion are those people who have strong, firm boundaries within their life. So that makes a lot of sense. So Julie, what were some challenges with fostering an infant that you faced? He was an NAS baby and I had no idea anything about that. I had never really even heard of it, to be honest, until they told me he was. And so I started doing a lot of research. And at the time, um, he was one week old when we got him. And a lot of the research said it is important to do skin to skin. And so I went through the channels to get that approved. The first time we did it, we did it for two and a half hours. And prior to this, he was on a feeding tube. And they were concerned because he was already a week old that he needed to come off of it at that point. And so after our skin to skin for two and a half hours, and even I believe I did it again later. He, um, he's not happy right now. <laughs> I know. He's my other jumping on the trampoline. After that, that night, his first full bottle, which he had not done the whole time. So I, I think skin to skin or any just kind of contact with an NAS baby is extremely important, especially in the first few weeks. And so I have reached out to our local hospital to express my want to be there in between the birth of the child. If there's not a parent there that, that can do it before a foster parent comes in, because a lot of times and it may be days or even a week until they can find a placement for that child. And I feel like when you have an NAS baby, it's extremely important in that first week to be there and let the child feel loved. And, you know, skin to skin is so important. Um, I truly believe it's, you know, because the first thing you do when you have a baby normally is they put it on your chest. And in some circumstances that can't happen, you know, so I just think that it's in, in just very important in their developmental, really, just to have that feeling of love. Yeah, that's so very important. It sounds like you took a lot of steps to really educate yourself. Were you ever hesitant or any concerns at all when you first heard that William had NAS? Yes, I was scared because I had three other biological children and I was thinking, what is this going to look like for us? How am I going to be able to give him the intention that he needs and still care? And is it going to affect what in his life and the more research I did the more it was like ADHD ADD learning you know maybe a little bit behind in school 
And I just thought to myself, well, I could have had a kid with ADD or ADHD. And if I have to hire a tutor when he's in, you know, eighth grade, well, I'll hire a tutor. Um, just, just other things that to me seemed trivial, you know, like it was nothing that I felt like we couldn't just handle later down the road. So in addition to the education, what were some other steps that you took to learn more about NAS or to become more involved in NAS, I guess I should say? Like I said, I reached out to the hospital and tried to work with them. And I just tried to do lots of research because I wanted William to have every chance as any other kid to not get behind in things. So like TEIS is a great program that you can get your kid, um, your foster kid in, or if later on you adopt, they can stay in that program until age three. And they really stay on top with, um, on top of like developmental and like Williams in speech therapy right now. So they help him get into that program. They even partner with your insurance to pay for part of it. And they just make sure he doesn't get behind in motor skills, language, I mean, anything really. And it's been a great program that I've really enjoyed and it's helped him get in, you know, to speech therapy. Now he's not two yet, but we kind of just felt like, well, I felt like I want to be proactive about it. You know, could it be because he has three older siblings that do whatever he wants? Yes. But could it be because he was NAS? Yes. And so I wanted to be proactive with the thought of that could be why he's delay in talking. Yes, like it's so extremely important. And it sounds like, again, that you took the time to really find out what services were out there and available. And as you said, to be proactive in your approach. Were you involved as an advocate in any way or um, joined any NAS groups? I thought it would be great um, just because, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't know all of the information I did was just internet searches about you know, and I read groups and I read people's testimonies that they had about their child that was adopted. And it really just gave me the sense of calmness that it wasn't anything that I couldn't handle and that it shouldn't be a, it shouldn't hold someone back to give a child a chance at life that they normally wouldn't have. Beautiful. Uh, anything else that you'd like to share? Just do your research and make sure that your foster child or adoptive child is in the programs that they need to be in. There are a lot of programs out there and the state, and especially if they're in foster care, really can give those children tons of opportunities to not be delayed and stuff. And I think that's what you just need to stay on top of it and always be proactive, not think, oh, well, you know, some kids are just slow, you know, because you're right. If it was maybe one that wasn't in AS, I probably would have been like, oh, well, he's just slow to talk. But it's just, it's always good to be with NAS kids to be proactive with whatever you think they need. That's great. Thank you. One final question. How has your life changed now that William's a part of your family? Well, it's never quiet. He's always into something and doing something. He's brought all of us so much joy. My, the, the new, the newness of him still has not worn off and he's almost two with my daughters. They love him. Their life revolves around him. Their friends love him. He's like their basketball mascot at school. And I just feel like he's touched everybody's lives that meet him because he's 
so happy and just his story everybody sees and they just think you know he's such a blessing to everybody that's so wonderful and um i just so appreciate you sharing your story with us it's so very uplifting and just wish you and your family all the best thank you thank you alexis thomas is the case manager that worked with william and his family she is now joining us alexis can you tell us a little about yourself yeah. Hi, everybody. My name is Alexis Thomas. Um, I'm a family services worker for the South Central region of DCS. I've worked here for about two and a half years. And in that two years, I was able to work on family in William. That's awesome. What a great way to start your career with DCS. I know. Um, it's been interesting. <laughs> yeah. Could you share with us what stands out for you in their adoption story? I think for me with this particular family and case, it was really interesting to see how the Sims were able to be an advocate for William while at the same time being an advocate and support for the birth family and maintaining such a positive relationship. And it's something that like I've tried to share my other cases. Um, but for me, it's one of the more successful stories because they've been able to support the birth mother specifically in her recovery while still raising William and doing what they can as a family unit. That's awesome. It really is. It makes such a difference when we see adoptive or foster parents who are able to support those birth parents. And ultimately, it's in the best interest of the children we work with. Yeah, absolutely. How do you see DCS as an advocate or support for others? I think in my experience in working with DCS, something that I tried to do is advocate for foster families to really learn about the situations that the children are brought into. Um, I think specifically with the foster parent on this case, she really learned to advocate for William because he was NAS and drug exposed at birth. So she's researched a lot about that and she's hoping to get involved with the hospital and volunteer in the NICU with NAS babies. Something else I think that was really important is just being able to continue to advocate for the birth parents and the foster parents to maintain a relationship. In this case, you know, in any case, it, it's really easy for foster parents to get frustrated with the birth parents' lack of progress or decision-making, but just continuing to teach the foster parent just, you know, to keep an open mind and be a support because sometimes that's the only support that these people have. So that's something that I've always tried to do is advocate for the foster parents to be passionate about what they're doing and really learn about the situations that they're getting into. Yeah, that's awesome, Alexis. Thank you so much for joining us here today. We appreciate you and we appreciate all the important work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. Well, listeners, that brings us to the end of our podcast. Hope you all enjoyed hearing these stories of joy and hope. Thank you and take care. Thank you, listener, for your interest about child welfare. Please join DCS Talks again to hear other subject matter experts discuss ways to advocate for children and build resilient communities. 